Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest, Nick Narrell. He is the director of Marketplace at Healthy. In this episode, we talk about what brought him into health tech, how his sales background helped him, his personal startup journey, what's the difference between going from zero to one, from one to 100 in your startup. It's a great episode, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey guys, got a great guest here today, Nick. Nick, how are you doing? I am doing good. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you for being on. I really appreciate it. On a Saturday morning. Um, so, <laughs> so for those who don't know who you are, do you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, I'll give the real quick version, then you can let me know if you ever want to go in deeper later on. Um, so I'm currently in business development at Healthy, which is an EHR and patient engagement platform. I've been in the health tech space for about five years now. Um, most of that has been working with digital health companies that really like touch the patient through virtual care, different patient engagement tools. Did a little bit of consulting with health systems on digital health strategies during my time at Panda Health. Uh, spent the better part of 2022 trying to build my own company before joining Healthy. And that's kind of where I'm at today. That's awesome. So what kind of brought you into this role, like this strategy, you know, in this world of digital health? Yeah. So I was a marketing management major in college and graduated, found myself working in luxury skincare for that summer after graduation. And then I had a mentor um, who I started to meet with because the company that I was at it was three of us, like that was a very like beginning startup. And I started to meet with him to ask for business advice on kind of navigating like the three person dynamic company, um, going from that type of zero to one phase. And he offered like, Hey, I have a company that I'm the president of down in Florida. I was living in Ohio at the time. And I basically like took the leap from that conversation. It was like three weeks later, I was moving into my apartment in Orlando that I had like never even seen before and started working as a SDR at a telehealth company. Wow, that's that's pretty crazy. Um, and also for those who don't know, what is an SDR? Yeah, it's a sales development rep. So if you're not in the sales side of things, um, if you're brand new to sales, SDR is often the role that you get thrown into. It's the cold calling, cold emailing, the people that blow up your inbox type of role. Um, and so I, I got started in that where I did purely outbound. So I'm doing all the cold calls and cold emails. I did that for four months. And then I switched to being an inbound SDR where that role is more of like you're handling all of the requests that come into the company and you're kind of like, filtering them and qualifying them to make sure only the good leads are getting passed on. So before this, you had no sales experience at all, right? Yeah. I mean, I had like door to door B2B energy sales, but it was like, it was nothing related to healthcare. Like I didn't know the difference between Medicare and Medicaid when I started at the telehealth company. Um, 
this is an industry secret. Uh, many people in healthcare still don't <laughs> know the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. Um, so don't feel too bad. Uh, anyone doesn't know it, don't feel too bad. We all we, we are all struggling with that. Uh, no, that's 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 crazy. So, what was the biggest difference that you saw between uh, your previous sales experience and in the sales in health tech or healthcare in general? <clears throat> oh, that's a good question. The the big difference between what I was doing before and healthcare was what I was doing before, it was just about the money. Because when you're doing like door-to-door energy sales, all I'm trying to do is save you money on your energy bill. Like I didn't need to know anything about their business. When I got into healthcare, like it was like a punch in the face when I did my first ever demo. And, you know, they're talking about the workflow of the MA, meeting the person at the front desk, taking them back into the office, all the forms that have to be done. But like requirements of patient self-scheduling. And immediately I was like, wow, I, I know not nearly enough about your practice to be able to sell you this product, even if I know the product really well. And so that was like immediately one of my first takeaways from getting into healthcare sales was if I'm going to be successful in this, I have to know how a practice runs inside and out. Yeah, no, and I think, and I think that's where um, some of the things from like the healthcare community versus like non-healthcare community when like technologists are trying to come in trying to solve the problem they don't realize how complicated it is because they'll be like oh why don't you just do this why don't you do that and then i'm sure with when you saw it like there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens from even just scheduling like just getting Mm -hmm. you on the schedule is really hard Mm -hmm. and then from there it gets even more complex uh so did you spend time with these like how did you how did you gain that knowledge yeah so i I was the SDR role for like eight months. And then I moved into a role where I could finally close deals on my own at like the end of April, 2019. So I had a full like 11 months of like closing experience before the pandemic started. So the great thing about that and being a inbound SDR was it gave me a good year and a half to have all of these conversations before I was like, working with people in the middle of a pandemic that really needed to buy something right away. And I mean, I was probably on eight to 12 calls a day with providers, whether they were a solo provider or a group practice, learning about the like workflows of their business. And The great thing about that was because it was prior to COVID, a lot of people had questions about, can I get paid for telehealth in my state? Am I allowed to do this? And so it made most of my conversations, like me learning about their practice rather than me just trying to like tell them all about MEND in the platform we had. And so, yeah, I mean, it was eight, 10, 12 conversations a day where I'm talking directly with a provider or directly with the practice manager, having them walk me through, okay, like patient schedules, what happens in your practice in between then and the appointment? uh, What type of forms do you have going out? Like, why is all this important to you? And so sales really helped me get a good understanding of kind of how our product could or could not fit into their practice. That's that's great to hear, especially from like my end that you gave it that that much of an effort and i think that that's what is needed um eight to 12 calls a day is not something like that's pretty pretty much your whole day plus more right so there's a lot of you know i talked to i talked to some people that are in health tech or technology in general and they're like oh how do we get through the door how do we contact people like 
what is your advice to them? Like, how do you get those phone calls? How do you get them to reply to your emails? What, 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 what were, what did, what are things that you did? Mm. <laughs> you buy lists that have lots of emails and phone numbers on them. <laughs> that's the, um, that's the like cop out answer. Um, and I think a lot of people in healthcare, um, are, I think people in healthcare are starting to realize that's out there. But back in like 2018, 2019, like I don't think many people in healthcare realized I could just go buy a list with 10,000 C-suite emails on them and then bombard them with emails. But there's certain, um, when you are doing that much activity, you get a lot of data on what people are responding to, what they're not responding to. And we started to really track um, what kind of buzzwords we were getting more response rates on in our emails and so things like uh no shows were great if we were talking to a specialty like mental health but when it came to a specialty practice like OBGYN, we couldn't really use no shows because for them it, how they defined a no show in their practice they might only have a four percent no show rate but then if you add in cancellations within 24 hours of the appointment that might go from four percent to 15 percent and so it's, you really have to develop an understanding of how these different specialties like talk it within their practice. And that's the language that you have to use in your emails. Because if you just try to say, oh, we solve no-shows, we reduce ER uh, readmissions. That's like what half of health tech says they solve. And so if that's what your cold email or your pitch says, they're like, great, I've got 10 others in my inbox. Why are you different? And I don't think companies put enough effort into saying why they are different they just talk about the value prop and that's why we have like so much repetition of what like digital health startups do in healthcare yeah no i mean i think that's great and that goes back to understanding what the practice is and how they work and what are their pain points right because then you were able to just be like okay let what is this practice a practices a pain point is different than practice b's pain point and it might be the same pain point but they speak in different languages right Exactly. And whether you're emailing the CFO or the CIO, you have to have a totally different email. <laughs> yeah. So that's the thing, guys. It's not easy. <laughs> like, you know, every, every, I think that's the one thing I think a lot of people struggle with. They think that every medical practice, every single specialty, we, we all um, act the same way. You know, everyone has the mm -hmm. same, same way of moving forward. The patients are interacted in the same way. I mean, our EHRs, the, the EHRs that we use, put us in the same box, right? We're all in the same box. And that's one of the reasons of burnout and all that stuff. But that's amazing. So I'd like to touch on your current role with Healthy and, you know, kind of what does, what does Healthy do? What, they, what do they offer? And kind of what, what is your role with them? Yeah. So Healthy is a EHR and patient engagement platform that I think has done a great job at not only creating a very like UI UX friendly platform for the clinicians and patients, but also for developers. And so that's been amazing to work there because we work with a lot of companies that they want an EHR and patient engagement platform that they can do some customizations with. And so the APIs that we have let customers have access to are the same APIs that our front end engineers use. And so like you can really do whatever you want to do with our platform as your back end. And so I'm on the business development side. So I'm talking with a lot of the venture back digital health startups that need to basically build out their core infrastructure to run their practice. 
Um, and so we have uh, organizations, we have thousands of individual providers on the platform, all the way to organizations with thousands of providers within their own organization. Um, so we kind of have across the board, everybody from mental health to um, like MSK to primary care, we're not really specialty specific. Yeah, no. And so from what I understand, you guys are kind of building a platform where other people can click in their solutions. Yep. So you can use healthy right out of the box. Personally, I think we have a beautiful UI. We have a number, a number of practices that just use the healthy UI. But then you get into some of these startups that uh, maybe they use a network of clinicians. And so it's really important that the clinicians see like that startup's brand. Maybe there's some specific workflows based off of their business model where they want to build a custom provider portal or a custom patient portal. And they might be using healthy on the back end of that. Um, but we let them have that option to do a lot of that, like white labeling and customization. That's pretty awesome. Um, and healthy has been around for quite a while, right? It's not just you guys didn't just pop up like during the pandemic. Right. Yeah. We've actually been around since 2016. Um, so we like just had our like seven year anniversary. Wow. That's pretty amazing, especially for in, like the EHR world. Um, what has been like the biggest um, hurdle for you guys, you know, going against the quote unquote big guys in the EHR world? It's mm, a good question. I think, you know, I've only been with healthy for two months now. And so I think like any digital health startup in the space, you really have to find like, who is your ideal customer profile. And like, for us, we're not going to go after a $5 billion health system to be their EHR. Like we're not designed for inpatient acute care settings. Um, we are really designed for like virtual first collaborative care. And that's what we put like right on our website. And so I don't know if you would call that so much of a challenge, but I think it's one thing that like Erica and the team have done a really good job on is making sure like, you know, let's continue to build this out for who our core customer base is. No, and I love that. And I think that's one thing that uh, some startups, and we can kind of touch into, go into this, is they try to be everything for everyone and then you're nothing for no one. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you can't, you know, even me, like I was trying to, my startup was actually in EHR about eight years ago and my target population was rural health. I did not want to go into the big hospital systems, mainly because they are already, like you said, they're massive, they're big, they need so much more than like a smaller clinic or a smaller hospital. And when you're starting out, you can really pinpoint on their pain points and like build it out and partner with them. Like, you know, they can be mm -hmm. on the journey with you. So yeah, no, that's amazing. So next, I would like to kind of talk about your personal startup that you were started in. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, what you, what you guys were building? Yeah, so this really got started back in 2021. Um, and to give context, I'll kind of talk about some like personal mental health experience I had. I was a Division One athlete in college and towards the end of my freshman year, um, was kind of let down with the training environment that I was in. And uh, I was really getting into my business classes and I had a goal of graduating college in three years. So I stopped doing track. I went like just hardcore and focusing on my business classes, but really lost my identity and leaving track. And I called our campus counseling center and they were like, Hey, thanks for calling, but we can't see you for six weeks because we're so busy. And then I waited the six weeks, didn't know what else to do. At that appointment, they were like, hey, thanks for coming in. Yeah, you seem anxious, but 
you, we don't really have any appointments for two months because we're so busy. The holiday break's coming up. And so now it's like, okay, thanks for making me wait like a month and a half just to tell me now I've got to wait two more months. But then they told me, hey, I could go to the physician on the other side of campus and get, you know, anti-anxiety medication in two days. So I had six months of an SSRI and 30 Xanax with zero provider oversight, like never talked to another clinician after getting all those meds. And I really felt let down by that system. Uh, fortunately, like that worked out well for me somehow. And then in 2021, as I got like several years into working in health tech, uh, advising different types of companies on their virtual workflows, um, my fiance and I were traveling. She came out of a work meeting in tears when she was in between therapy appointments. And it reminded me of my whole experience back in college. There's, there's such a gap. If you are in between appointments, you're on a wait list, or you're too hesitant to get care in the first place in some of these areas that are more stigmatized than others. And so we wanted to build a platform that really empowered clinicians to create high quality, like psychoeducational content for users in a mental health safe environment. There was a lot of good stuff that was happening on like Instagram and TikTok and YouTube. But the problem with that is like, what happens if you watch a 30 second video of a therapist talking on Instagram, and then the next thing you see triggers you like it, it's not it, it, the social media is not a safe platform for anybody to rely on for where they get their mental health education and, and advice. So we wanted to give clinicians a content distribution platform to be able to do that. Um, and so we had a couple of different pivots along the way. Uh, started out really focused on content. I hate using this metaphor, but it was kind of like an OnlyFans platform where the um, creators, the clinicians, they had free content and content that you would have to pay for. So it could be a little bit of a revenue stream for them. Um, they could create a whole like directory listing, drive patients to their website or to one of their other directory profiles. Uh, and then over time, we started to realize like, okay, the content is really the value here. We kind of pivoted into a search engine, which that was a mistake looking back at it. Um, and then really in the fall, we realized that what we had built was a really cool resource. You know, we got to a point where we were having 15, 20,000 page views a month, um, but we weren't getting a volume in order to be have the resources to get the volume that we needed to in order to really monetize and so we were like, well, let's keep forhaley.com as a resource, not really focus on it so much as a business. And that's what kind of took me on my journey to go finding the job I'm in now. That's, I mean, that's, that's really interesting and fascinating. And uh, you're absolutely right. I think that, um, I mean, there's a lot, a lot in there I mean, for me that, that, that strikes a chord with me. A, you know, that whole between visits thing. I think healthcare, we do a really bad job of reaching out to patients when they're outside of our four walls. And I argue that 99% of healthcare is really once they leave us, that's when they need us the most, right? Because half the times people forget what you're telling them or in, in, in the case of your stories, you know, they need the help when they're gone, right? Like they, who are you going to turn to? And then we in the medical community complain about, oh, Dr. Google, everyone just Googles things. But what are we doing to stop our patients from doing that? Are we available when we're, when we need, when they need us? We aren't, we just aren't. So um, I, that definitely strikes a chord with me. And that's something that I think that that's where technology can help is in, in the middle of those things. But did you, did you find that, um, clinicians were, was it hard for you to get clinicians on board on the platform? 
Um, some, some were ready to hop on, you know, back in like January, February of 2022, I was doing like interviews with therapists every single day, asking them about like what they thought the problems of social media were, if they made content, what they liked about making content, why they made it to kind of do like some initial like product feedback type interviews. And was this worth building? And we had about like 10 alpha beta users to make some content. And then we slowly grew that to about like 50 after we had kind of launched, like really put the name out there. Then when we launched the directory type listing where you could acquire patients, we very quickly went from like 50 to 180. And what we realized was it wasn't that hard to get clinicians to create a free profile. The hard part was to get them to create content on a non-social media like platform. Um, and so even when we got to 180, 200 clinicians, it was still 15 to 20% of the clinicians that had made an account for making content. And so most of them only hopped on just because they thought it might be a patient acquisition channel. They didn't really want to create content for a new platform. Yeah. And that's, and that's an interesting conversation to have in general is when you're creating a platform, how do you, because you need people to kind of break their just daily routine, right? You know, everyone has their specific social media things that they're going to and you know, and if you're asking them to kind of go to a different thing, it takes some time. Was there anything that you guys were doing to help them? Um, kind of, I don't want to use the word entice, but was there anything that you guys were using to kind of get them to be more active? <laughs> oh yeah. We straight up paid for content in the beginning. Um, and that was hard because we never raised funding. So every dollar that went into building Haley came out of Michael, my co-founder and myself pocket. So in the beginning, we did different promotions where we paid up to like, I think like $50 for a few minute video on the platform. Um, and then I, I said some of the other, like, I guess enticing you could say, or just like promoting of it was we had gotten the Haley LinkedIn and Twitter and my personal Twitter to like a, a little bit of a following. And so if somebody did make a piece of content on the platform, like, we'd share it through the Haley accounts or through the Haley LinkedIn. Uh, and that, that worked a little bit. I think clinicians really like seeing their content, like get noticed and having other accounts say, Hey, look at this great piece of content this therapist made. And we did notice that like that did entice like other creators to want to post content in the hopes that we would reshare it. Yeah, no. And I think that's, that's, yeah, no, for sure. Um, was there, um, was there like a specific clin like where there's how do I say this clinicians? We are not content. You know, we're not like born content creators. <laughs> I know shock to everyone, <laughs> but was there anything like, was there anything where you guys would help them kind of create the content or give them like a little thing or was it kind of, they can do whatever they wanted to, or I don't know if that question really makes sense. Yeah. So we, we had guidelines around the types of content that we expected for Haley because we did not want it to be like your typical 
20 second TikTok that was very like clickbaity, no context, would make this apply to as many people as possible. We did not want that. And so we did lay out some kind of clear instructions for clinicians on how to create the type of content that we were looking for. But I don't think we did a good enough job of like almost providing like resources you would expect from like a content studio. Um, we had a page on like, you know, how to make a nice looking video. Um, one of the creators, I think actually used Loom where she like made a PowerPoint and then recorded herself like talking through it. And her face was in the bottom right of the presentation. And that was amazing. I, it, like, we should have made a whole video about how she did that. But uh, yeah, we didn't go enough into, I think, like helping empower clinicians to create good content. Yeah. Um, and then, so this kind of brings us to a kind of another topic that I think is important for people to learn, you know, what's the difference between, you know, you've kind of done both, right? You've gone from the zero to one, and now you're in the one to 100 stage. What is the biggest difference, like going from zero to one, when you're starting something like, what did you learn that you didn't think, or what do you think people need to know about going, starting something from nothing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, product market fit is more of a beast than you think it is, <laughs> which sounds obvious, but you know, we, we had a, a few thousand annual recurring revenue at Haley technically. And that wasn't like, we weren't even close to product market fit. Um, and one of the things that I had realized through the whole process was doing like potential user interviews the correct way is an insanely powerful skill that I did not have back in January when I was first doing it. Now I would be so much better at it because I've done a hundred of them. I've read the resources on it, but I had no clue how to ask the right questions to see if this was something we were building people would actually use and maybe pay for um, that's the, the big thing from zero to one is doing that initial research to make sure, am I building something worth building? Because if you are like, you're going to find your first customers. I mean, it's most often going to come from your network um, or from some like basic online marketing to get some of those first customers. And then you're going to use those customers to say, okay, why are you using this product? How can we make this better for you? And that's how you're going to get some of your first like product iterations. And then I've been at the other side of that where you have companies that are, I joined when they were less than a million in revenue. And then I helped one of them get to 7 million in revenue. And from there, it's a big part of like really defining who you are and sticking true to that and building a little bit of a process to figure out how can we then scale this out because you can't just rely on like your network to go from, you know, one to 10 or to a hundred. So yeah, the big, the big thing for that zero to one is you really got to make sure you're in product market fit. Yeah. Product market fit is like you said, it's a beast <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and people, you know, when you first start, you think, you know, the product market fit, but you, you're the product market fit. The other people mm -hmm. are not the product market fit yet. And you talked about user interviews and, you know, me being a product manager now, I'd love to get any insight from you in terms of how, how to do a good user interview and kind of what questions that you use, because it is important, right? You don't want it to be leading, but you also need to do it to be informative. Right. Like there's like this fine line you have to kind of like 
do you mind giving at least me yeah a little? yeah so there's a really good book on this called the mom test and i read this over the summer and it gave me a lot of really good insights about what i was doing wrong back last winter and i think some of the great things that it talks about is like you said you don't want to be leading um but you also just want to th- figure out how much of a problem is it in the first place for the person you're talking to one of the things that the book brings up is if you are building a solution and somebody you're talking to them about the problem you really don't want to bring up like what your solution is when you're doing these like interviews you just want to figure out how much they think of a problem it is and so if you ask them you know have you ever looked into like is there a solution for this problem that you have a lot of times people will say no because like it's not that much of a problem where they they care to solve and that's a huge issue in itself like you haven't identified a pain point that's strong enough for them to want to go out of their way just to even google search like is there a solution for this um i think a great example is like people talk about like managing their calendar or managing their email better there's dozens of tools out there to do that most people just don't care enough to go get superhuman uh, for email or to do use some of these calendar management tools and so that's what like really good user interviews are about is figuring out okay if this is a problem what is this person doing today that makes this a problem? How much of a problem is it for them? And how much have they already gone to try to find a solution that's out there? And if they say, you know, I've looked everywhere, I can't find anything, I would, you know, I pay X for this. You've got good indicators that this is something that person actually wants to change. And then you can start to ask them more about like, you know, what's it going to do for them if they do have that problem solved? Um, like what is kind of the are you ROI on that? Is it a time saving, a money saving, just convenience type thing? So that's from the mom test. I would highly recommend that book to anyone who's got to do like potential user interviews or they're thinking about building a product. I think I'm definitely gonna look into that book right after this call because uh I mean I could talk about product all day long. I love product. Um, but that's so important, right? And then also the other thing you find with user interviews is your the person, the persona that you were going after initially might not be the person that you should be, right? And as you talk to more people, that perfect customer changes a little bit, right? And for maybe mm-hmm. you were going after, you know, a mid twenties, you know, person coming out of college, but then you realize, no, we really need to go to people that are in like, you know, five, ten years into their career, and they're looking for this, right? It's just, and and that's why user interviews are so important and it's so important to do it earlier rather than later. Like you need to do it before, like kind of during the ideas phase, like during your discovery phase, like before you get the MVP out, like that's, Mm -hmm. you you really need to be out there finding people to interview. Yeah, like that was one of the things we realized at Haley with the like beta testers that we had. They were clinicians who were kind of like, already into their career of being a therapist they were already making some content for other platforms but then once we hit like 50 therapists we realized oh like the people we have actually creating a lot of content are like associate therapists or they're just about to get their full licensure to practice on their own and they wanted to create content to build their brand and get their name out there they were not the therapists that already were making you know five tiktoks a week on mental health And so it's like, oh, I should have been interviewing like a totally different segment of therapists all along. 
And the mom test talks about that. There's a, they use an example of a, a guy interviewing his mom because he wants to create like an app to find recipes. And so he talks to his mom about like where she finds her recipes and everything. And, you know, throughout the interview process, he realizes like, you know, maybe his mom isn't exactly the target market that he should be thinking about building for, or maybe it's the app isn't the right way to build the discovery source. And he was kind of misled in his initial judgments there. So spot on is like whoever you are interviewing for whatever you want to build, figure out if you're actually interviewing the right people. Yeah, no. And that's why I like product a lot too is because you, you're kind of open, right? You're like in this like open world game, if you want to call it that, right? And mm -hmm. you can go anywhere you want and it's up to you to figure out the strategy. It's up to you to kind of go and, and that's not what I was getting in medicine. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go into product, but, um, but yeah, man, that's amazing. So talk, talk about your kind of journey from being a, a pharmacist and going into product. I think, I mean, with the way the economy is right now, like, I, and just the general, I think, feeling like a lot of clinicians have one, like you've already mentioned in this podcast, a lot of clinicians feel burnt out from the pandemic. Um, but also I know a lot of therapists that are trying to find their way into tech. How did you figure out a way to go from being a pharmacist to being a product manager at a huge company? Um, a lot of luck and a lot of prayer. No, um, <laughs> yes, that is part of it for sure. Uh, no, honestly, man, um, it's, I kind of, I wrote about it recently and it took me four, almost four years to get to this point. And, and initially it took me, it, I was really embarrassed to admit that to people because I was like, man, it took me four years to find this job. But I mean, I wanted to make it, I wanted to put it out there because I wanted people to know that, Hey, just because you, I mean, I have hundreds of rejections in my inbox. I mean, there was a point where when I applied to a job, uh, the HR person called me and asked me, do you know what job you applied to? It, it was like that. Like, that's the kind of feedback I was getting. It was really wow. hard. Yeah. And I'm sitting here like, hey, I have a doctorate degree. And I remember one interview I had was I was interviewing with them and they said, well, you know, you, you have great credentials. You have great background. You know, we love what you can bring to the team, but you don't have any tech experience. And I was like, how many people do you have in your company that have healthcare experience? They're like none. And I'm like, well, I have almost <laughs> at that time, like eight years of experience. Like, you know, I can learn the tech side. I've, I've learned, you know, and that's no problem for me. And they were like, no, no, we need somebody with tech experience. So that's one of the biggest things that as a clinician you face. And I think the biggest thing that we need to do as clinicians is looking at what, what, um, what skills that we have that transfer to tech, right? It's all about jargon, mm -hmm. like what we can do when we can speak, right? So, I mean, you know, there's so many things that we do, like, you know, you know, having deadlines and creating like detailed reports for people, right? And working under pressure. There's just so many things that we as clinicians can do. But in terms of my journey into how I got this job, what I did initially was so my startup initially, right? When I was creating my startup, it was like a mobile, e I wanted to create a cloud-based DHR uh, where patients control their own healthcare data. So it's a pretty big undertaking. So it was like three years of my life and through that time, I found that I really loved uh, design, the UI, UX part of it. I loved the strategy piece of it. I loved like interviewing people, trying to figure out product market fit. And at that time, I thought I was doing like four different jobs. I didn't know that there were like, it was just one big job. So I was, so a, a student had asked me uh, like in 2019, if I could do this for the rest of my life. 
like what I was doing and I couldn't say yes. I was like, I can't, I don't think I can. So I kind of had to kind of figure out what I wanted to do and it, everything kind of led me to product management. So what I started doing was I reached out to, I started networking with people. I reached out to like startups and such and told them like, Hey, uh, once I got to know them, I didn't reach out for this intention, yeah. but once I started to get to know the startups, I would try to be like, Hey, I can help you out. And I would come in as a subject matter expert. Um, you know, obviously I have so much experience in healthcare that didn't have really, they needed somebody like a clinician like me. And then I would kind of not weasel my way in, but I would kind of ask mm -hmm. like questions like, Oh, have you guys thought about this? Have you guys thought about this? And then kind of work into work myself into product management. So that's kind of how I started gaining skills for product management, learning like the different jargon as much as I hate to say it, knowing the jargon helps quite a bit. Um, and then I started like listening to different podcasts, like, you know, Lenny's podcast is a great one for product management. If anyone's looking into getting a product management, he's an amazing resource, a former product manager at Airbnb when they first started. Um, and then there were a couple of books, uh, Inspired is one. And then the other one is like, I can't remember, like how to crack the PM interview or something like that. But those kind of things. But yeah, man, it was just grinding and just like working for free for the majority of it as a second job, basically. And just networking and networking, networking, networking. That's like the number one thing I tell people is just network, network, network. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to network with somebody, found a pharmacist actually, who was a product manager. And then he led me into this group of product managers that are pharmacist specific. So mm -hmm. then they helped me like redo my whole resume. So the other thing that for like a clinician, if you're listening to this, they don't care what your clinical background, you know, they don't care what you've done clinically, right? They don't care how you're taking your, as, as sad as it is to say, but you need to show them like what you can do. So I was able to, so, he, so they told me like, Hey, 90% of my resume was gone. And I'm like sitting there like, Holy cow. But I had my consulting experience. So I, I wrote all my consulting experience down what I did. I gave proof of what I was doing. And then I put my startup down because he's like, Hey, you, you were doing all this stuff. If he's like, if you can talk to it, put it down. So I had all that and, um, yeah, man, uh, interview prep, learning the jargon, that was kind of it, but it was a long road. And the, the easiest thing I can say is network with the right people. Don't be afraid to reach out to director level, like manager level, even the job that I got, uh, when it, when it was post, when like two people had sent it to me and when I went to apply for it, it was closed on LinkedIn. I was like, okay, mm. cool. Then I went to their website and I went to go apply to it. And it was, I couldn't find it. So I was at this point, you know, like I've, I've gotten like 200 plus rejections at this point. I'm pretty immune to it now. So I was <laughs> like, so I found, I found a way to reach out to the guy, the hiring manager. And I just emailed him and I just emailed him at his home email. And I just gave him all my credentials, wrote everything, sent my resume. And to my surprise, he emailed me back. And so like, you have to really take the steps and you have to really, nothing's going to be like just landing your feet. Like when you're making that transition, it's, it's that, but having that experience as a product manager really helped me a lot with my startup and, um, helping out. So if, if, if I have any advice for people is just reach out to these startups, there's a lot of health tech startups right now, reach out to them and see how you can help them as a product manager. Um, and so that's kind of what I would say, but yeah, it is a long road, unfortunately, but, um, if I can do it, I'm not the smartest, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. So anyone can really do it. I love how like, much of an emphasis you put on figuring out how you got like your prior experience to relate to product management 
I think that's one of the like, greatest things about working in healthcare is so many people in this industry, they deep dive into areas of healthcare that are not necessarily like what their role entails. Like my job is purely B2B business development. But if I never spent time looking at product, looking at the M&A that was going on, looking at like care operations, like I, I couldn't do my job effectively. And so I think whether you are a clinician, whether you're in sales, whether you're in product, like the things that you do in healthcare could probably help you get like six or seven other roles if you stayed in healthcare, because we are in this like massively intertwined system. 100%. And then kind of going back to user interviews, user interviews being really, really important. I mean, that's all we do all day. We're interviewing patients. We're trying to get necessary details. And most of the times we're not trying to lead them because we want the truth from them. We don't want mm -hmm. them. We don't want to hear what we want to hear. We want to hear what they're trying to tell us because we can't help them unless we know the truth. So like user interviews, great, great for product. You know, there's a lot of times we're in situations where we have zero idea when we're we'll go, when you're in the hospital setting or an ER, you're walking into a room and you have zero idea. So you have to be very, it's really, it's really funny. Like people look at clinicians as very rigid and not like flexible, but we have to be really flexible. Like we don't know 90% of the times what we're walking into. Is the patient going to be aggressive? Are they going to be nice? How is the family going to be? Like we have to, we're constantly running through these things. And on top of that, we have to be so on edge because we need to make sure that everything is right. Everything we're, we're diagnosing the patient. We're making sure everything's going okay. So there's like so many things that transfer over to product. And I think that's what made my, that's why I like product a lot was because there were so many things that I did as a clinician that just transferred to products so seamlessly. Yeah, that's awesome. But no, yeah, no. Um, but yeah, man, product's a great role, everyone. Uh, definitely do it. It's, it can be really <laughs> stressful, for sure. It can definitely be stressful, but um, it's amazing. It gives you so much strategy. I mean, it's just, it's just everything that I love, I can do in product. And that's why I really, really like product. But um, yeah, man. Yeah, I'm not used to people asking me questions on the podcast. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, I mean, what do you think? So going back to the zero to one and one to a hundred, do you think that you can have the same? Because I've, I've heard this too, where you need different leaders at different points in your company, right? Going from the zero to one, you have to be a little bit more, I shouldn't say ruthless, but you kind of have to be not, I shouldn't even use the word crazy, but you have to be very like 100% in it, right? And then going from one to a hundred is a completely different mindset. Do you think that, like for me, I know my personality. I don't know if I have the personality of going from zero to one, like having gone through it, but I think I can do one to 100. Do you think that there is a difference between the two? There's definitely, a, I think, a maturation process between the two. Um, from zero to one, I like using the word scrappy. Um, like you have to be willing to do what others might see as non-conventional to go from zero to one. Um, a good example of this is one of the things that we did at Haley because we had basically zero budget was I realized that therapists love coffee. I mean, most people do, but like therapists on a whole new level. And so um, I quickly realized that if I could get into the Twitter community of therapists, like I could immediately be in front of dozens and dozens of therapists. And so I created this Monday morning routine of hashtag coffee for clinicians. 
and I would Venmo $5 to a therapist on Twitter. And almost every single week, they would tweet a picture of the coffee they purchased, tag me in it, and thank them. And then I would now be in front of all of their therapist followers. Like, that is such a scrappy thing to do to get your name out in front to go from zero to one. No, to go from one to 100, there is more delegation that you have to do. There's more of defining who you are. And so you can't, you can't expect to do you know, everything on your own. You can't expect you're going to continue to grow the same way because you're going to reach this like, you know, diminishing value of, okay, the people I've been in front of for the past zero to one, they already know about me. I've got to figure out a way to branch out from there. And so whether it's your market changes a little bit, the hires that you bring in, I, I think it's more about the leader has to realize it's going to take different things to go from one to a hundred. And we've seen uh, a lot of great leaders, you know, stick through their companies through that. But yeah, then there's been some that have changed out too. So I think that's just someone's personality. Like, I think there's people that are really good at that zero to one phase, but not one to a hundred. And I think those are the people where you just constantly see them going back to build something new. They don't like sticking around for the rest of it, but I don't think it necessarily has to be different leaders. Yeah, no. And it's no, that's amazing. That, uh, that hashtag. So did you do this from your own personal account or the Haley account? <laughs> oh no, I was Venmoing straight from like, <laughs> the, the bank and Nick Narrell. <laughs> uh, normally, normally it'd be like two to three therapists a week. Um, I'd find them on Twitter. Normally it'd be someone I was following and they followed me. And then I would send them a $5 Venmo that was hashtag coffee for clinicians as the description. Uh, and it was so funny, like how happy it made people. Like if you, I could have put anything else in that description, like have a good week. But the fact that it was designed for like coffee made people feel like that much happier about it, even though it's $5 either way. You know why? Because we're so used to not get, you know, we're so used to like, we're always in a mindset of just give, 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 never take, take, take. So if any time like somebody gives us something, it's like, it could be like the smallest thing in the world. Um, you know, it's just like, whoa, like, it's just like, mm -hmm. it's like this weird thing. Like, oh my God. <laughs> You know, people like will do the other thing. It's just, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, you kind of talked about Twitter and social media and kind of growing on it. And it's, social media is really important nowadays for growing companies, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, um, oh, I should say not, it's not free, but almost a, a freer way of doing it. Do you have any advice for people that are trying to grow on Twitter or Instagram or whatever? Or is there a specific platform they should really be focusing in on? Oh, I think it's, um, I mean, kind of going back to like what we were talking about with making sure you're doing interviews with the right market. I think social media is very much the same where like venture capital world all over Twitter. Um, strangely enough, um, I realized there was a great therapist Twitter community. I think, um, you know, other places you realize like people are all over, like recruiters are all over LinkedIn because it's where all the professionals are. So I don't think there's one platform that's more important than any other um, in a general sense. I think you'll figure it out for your target market. I think one of the new trends that's coming out of 2022 is the concept of micro communities and things like Slack. Um, I recently got added to the Health Tech Nerds Slack channel, and there's like 4,000 people in there. 
and it's like the most valuable community I think I've joined in the past year. The amount of like constant conversation and questions that are going on in there from like very, very smart people, people that are leading product sales, marketing technology at like multi-million dollar startups, to billion dollar startups to the traditional incumbents of healthcare. Um, I, I think micro communities are going to continue to be something that become more and more important. And like in the mental health space, um, therapists and tech, um, they are another micro community that has become really powerful over the past year. And that's going to be a powerhouse of like the next founders. They are going to be a member of one of these communities that figures out how to use those micro communities they're in to find their first customers. Yeah, no, um, I'm actually a fellow health tech nerd. I need to be more active yeah. in it. It is an amazing community, though. There is a lot of people. And the, you might, the, the crazy thing is you have like these CEOs and like when you look from far away, like, oh, my God, I could never reach out to them. And they're literally in this Slack group answering like mm -hmm. the most remedial questions. And they're not <laughs> making fun of anyone or anything like that. They're like breaking it down and they're like writing a thesis on it. And you're just like sitting there like. Holy cow. And you can see why they're successful, right? Because you, mm -hmm. you get into these people's brains and it's just amazing. But yeah, I need to be a little bit more active in that community. I, need, I, need, I definitely do, but it's a great community for anyone that's that interested. Goes, that goes back to like the first question you asked me too about like how to like cold email and cold call these people. It's like sometimes it's just being a part of the same Slack group as them. And it's like, then you realize, oh, the CTO of this like health systems in health tech nerds, I can send them a DM on Slack rather than trying to, get through their email inbox, which an assistant's probably going to view. Yeah, that's the other thing, right? And that's that's one thing that I think is really important is finding where these people are, right? I was talking to somebody and they were, they were I forgot what social media they were focusing in on, but they found that um, these specific group of people, like you mentioned, VCs are on Twitter, right? And they were focusing on Instagram or LinkedIn, or I can't remember exactly. And then it like blew their mind that they're like, oh my God, they're on Twitter. Why are we doing all this over <laughs> here? So then they switched over there and they and it was just a completely different world. Uh, but yeah, man, it's, it's social media is an interesting thing. I'm really not good at it. I'm very much an introvert, um, but I'm trying my best <laughs> to get better, <laughs> but, but yeah, man, that's, um, what, uh, what, well, I guess, um, what advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now, kind of going back to when you first started or, you know, I mean, like. I guess in general, like what would advice would you give yourself right now when you like were coming out of school and, you know, trying to figure out what to do? Yeah, I think you touched on it a little bit when you were talking about changing jobs in terms of networking. I think that's one thing that I fortunately realized pretty fast, I think because of the, actually the power of like LinkedIn and what it was like to have a good network there. Um, and you also mentioned it in getting your product manager role was you didn't get it just because you applied through a job board or through the website. Like if you didn't email the hiring manager, you probably never would have gotten that job. Nope. I didn't get my first job at men because I applied. I got it because I knew the president, which is like a super privileged thing to say, <laughs> but it's true. And I, I didn't get the job at Panda Health because I applied through a random application um, I messaged the chief growth officer and said, Hey, I love what you all are doing. By the way, my experience is super relevant. Um, and that's what I would tell anyone who is in their twenties, still trying to figure out their career is if you have like an ideal role or industry that you want to go after, 
it's all about doing like the extra step in networking, like turn the LinkedIn to a virtual coffee meeting, find someone in your city to go sit down and talk to. So that way, when the right opportunity comes up, you're not going to a work day or like what greenhouse or whatever it is, job board, like you are talking straight to the hiring manager because you've worked your way in there. And that, that might take time. You know, it took you four years. Um, there was a time in my life where I really wanted to work uh, for Disney because I live in Orlando and um, I networked for two years uh, before I got the interview for the right role. And so that's my recommendation is going to be, you know, go after the network and go do the extra steps to take the initiative. It's not weird to DM a hiring manager on LinkedIn, if you say the right thing, I, I think a lot of people are hesitant, especially earlier in their career, because they're like, oh, I can't do that. Like that person's title is so big. Don't be afraid. The people that are doing that are the people that are winning. Yeah. And I could not agree with you more. I wish I would have networked more. And the thing is, when you're younger and you're a student, more people will respond back to you because they're like, oh, because they want to give back, right? Because yeah. they're like, oh, this guy is a student. And they think, and we all are nostalgic of when we were students. And how we had no idea what the hell is going on. And we like to see people trying to take charge. And the other thing is that I found is everyone is a human being. It doesn't matter what mm -hmm. their title is. They all, we all like our own things. We're all crazy. We're all quirky. We all have, and if you, and that's the one thing that has helped me a lot with networking is I don't really look at the title anymore. I'm just looking at for an interesting person and it's much easier for me to talk to people now versus where like I used to before, like, Oh my God, this guy's a director or this guy's a manager. And I'd be like, I'd like to talk to my wife. I'm like, Hey, go like I have to talk to this person. And she'd be like, trying to psych, like bring me down. It's like, it's okay. It's okay. And now it's just like, I have a call with, I'm not trying you know, like C-suite people. And I'm just like, Oh yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, and it's like networking is one of the most powerful things you can do. LinkedIn is such a great platform and you're right. Just reach out to them. And I mean, don't reach out to them like, Hey, or I want to talk like, like you, like you did, right. Hey, I love what you're doing. This is what I've done. And this is maybe how we can collaborate. Like, Find everyone has something to give. You just have to figure out what you can provide to them. And and it's not like a transactional thing. Don't make it transactional. Look at it as, hey, I'm just trying to find somebody. I'm just talking to somebody cool in the community. And it makes it a lot easier when you, when you shift your mind to that. Yeah, it's like you said, everybody is a human. And if you are earlier in your career, people are more willing to accept, you know, imperfection, I think. And so when you are reaching out to somebody yeah, don't be like straight up blunt or it's all about you. If you reach out to someone genuinely, it looks like you took the time to figure some things out to relate to them. Um, they are going to be nice back. I, um, I once got call with a venture capital firm because I took the time to research where the guy got his MBA and it was an MBA school that I had applied to. And so I asked him like about his time at that school and he replied back in like five minutes. So like somebody I had no business talking to. Um, and so, yeah, doing that like extra little bit of research into who you want to talk to goes a very long way. Yeah. And that probably took you what, like two minutes, right? Exactly. That, that's what I tell people. <laughs> it's like, even like putting, asking them what they're doing at the company that they're at, right? Like even some, if you don't know anything else, at least write like the company that they're working for and would love to learn more. Like for me, like transitioning, I was reaching out to people that had transitioned, that was at, trying to ask about their journey and I was genuinely curious about it. And then when I was reaching out to people that the companies that I was interested in, I would just be like, Hey, 
would love to know what you guys are doing. You know, this is my background. I'm an oncology pharmacist, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I, I like people say, oh, you know, most people don't reply back. I get like a 10% hit rate or whatever. Like mine was close to 50 plus percent because I took the time, got to know what they were doing, what, you know, what the company's even doing and how I could really, how I could maybe relate to them. So it, it, it it's an extra five minutes. Take that time yeah. and... and Play the long game. Like I, I can't even count how many times I've seen your name in my LinkedIn notifications because you've liked or commented on my posts. And then when you hit me up via DM, I was like, oh, I know who this guy is. Like <laughs> he's a supporter of my LinkedIn post. I am going to talk to him. Yeah, no, that's for sure. I mean, you have to, well, first of all, thank you. Um, I appreciate <laughs> that. But yeah, no, I mean, you have to you have to make it a two-way street, right? You can't just expect people to engage with you if you don't engage with them. And I wasn't, and I don't engage with people because I want to talk to them. It's just interesting. Like you, I mean, I, I kind of talked about this when you first met, like one of the first posts you made was like a Nike commercial and I was like reading it and it captivated me. And I'm like, man, if this was a real commercial, this would be amazing. Like Nike needs to hire this guy. And then from there, I was like, this guy is cool. Like I like what he's putting out there. And um, yeah, that's why I reached out. I'm like, man, he'd be awesome to talk to. And I'm glad you did. But yeah, you have to play the long game. And nothing's going to happen overnight. I know we live in a society where we expect everything to happen overnight, but nothing's going to happen overnight. It's going to take some time. And as long as you're willing to put in the time, there are a lot of people out there to help. And if somebody doesn't reply back to you, that's fine. Just move on to the next person. Like there is, there's like two point something billion people out there. That one person is not going to make the difference. Yeah. Then the nice thing somebody told me when I was first figuring this out was the people that do respond are the people you want to talk to anyways. So the people that you put the effort in, you send them a really nice message and they don't respond. They're not the people that are, you know, really worth having the conversation with anyway, but the people that respond are the people you really want to talk to. Yeah. And they're the ones that are, and you'll be, I was so surprised, not even, I was so baffled by after five, five, 10 minutes of talking to them, like, yeah, we'll refer you to the role. You know, we'll, we'll do that. We'll mm -hmm. do this. Like, and I didn't even ask them. Like, I would never ask people to refer me. I would never ask people to give me a job. I was just literally just trying to learn. And like, I think a lot of that was because they saw that, you know, I was trying, right? I was trying to learn more about it. It wasn't just like, get on the call. Hey, John. Oh, yeah. So I saw this role. Do you mind? Giving, you know, it was like learning about them and mm -hmm. asking them questions and being like, and, and I had so many people like, I mean, I'm so grateful and to everyone I've met they've helped me so much i did not get here by myself no way no way i could have done this on my own but networking is such a powerful tool earlier you do it the better off you are it's just it's just one of those things that people just don't like talking about or they think it's sleazy <laughs> because they're like oh it's so transactional i don't want to... everyone knows half the times when you get a, i get a message from somebody i kind of know what the back end of it is but if like you said if you're taking a little time to get to know me i it makes it a lot easier it makes the makes everything a lot easier but no, that's amazing advice. So if anyone wants to reach out to you and they should, where, where can they, re where can they find you? Yeah. Um, the fortunate thing of having my last name narrow, <laughs> like nobody else has it. So I can normally get like the handles that are just my name. Um, so pretty much like whatever platform you're on, if you just type in Nick narrow, um, you're going to find me, whether it's LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, um, LinkedIn's probably like the best place to DM me if you want to get in touch. Um, and then, yeah, my, my email is pretty much just narrow at gmail.com or there's a couple other business ones out there. That if you find props to you, I'll definitely reach out if you find some of those ones that aren't public. Cause that's impressive. 
Yeah, we'll, we won't, we will not link those ones in the show notes below because that is <laughs> up to you to find them. But yeah, I'll have the other ones uh, in the show notes below. But Nick, cool. this was an amazing conversation. Um, I definitely learned a lot. Um, and I know the viewer and I know the viewers and listeners will learn as well. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was great.